Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. Why is it that Christianity is rooted and founded in the cross? You know, what Jesus did on the cross, in the grave, in his ascension, where we are in him as a result of that. And it's like, man, a large part of Christianity, for some reason, I don't think really understands to the depths of what happened. It's not that we got it figured out and they don't. It's just, you know, it's not about that. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ those that believe, but I I want people to be so rooted in the truth that when the deception comes or when the enemy's voice comes or when your emotions that don't line up with truth come, you can shift your focus back to, no, this is what happened at the cross. This piece is mine and I'm going to fight to hold on to it, not to earn it, but to be at that place of steadiness and surety in Christ. Amen? amen. I'm, I'm going to coax some amens out of you today. Hallelujah. Get y'all, I'm going to get my amen corner going Come here. <laughs> because we have good news. The world deserves for us to believe the truth. You know, we've been talking about our innocence. We've been talking about how we are free from accusation before the Father. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about spiritual warfare and what spiritual warfare truly is, is you bringing your thoughts into alignment so that they're in agreement with what Christ was obedient to through the cross. You know, spiritual warfare is not asking the devil what its name is inside that person, tying it up, bringing it to Jesus and somehow fighting with it until it submits to Jesus. That's That's charismatic activity. You can do that if you want to. You're not going to get very far with it. But the way the enemy loses any influence in your life is you change what you're thinking to be in agreement with what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Very simple. So then last week we talked about on the cross, and your homework was read Colossians 2. Did y'all read that? You don't have to answer that if you don't want to. No condemnation. (laughs) In first service, uh, Sally sat over there, and she was talking about how did she they she was talking about how um, she had an opportunity to she was with a group of women this week, and and she just did her homework with them. They all read Colossians two together, focusing on this idea that the law is not a standard that you're measured with. The law is not something that God uses to hold up next to you to see if you measure up to His acceptance. It actually is something that Jesus fulfilled on our behalf and scandalously grafts us into his finished work and his accomplishment of the cross and fulfillment of the law. And on the cross, not only did he finish the completion of fulfilling the law, but he absorbed within himself all the wrath, all the punishment, this divine exchange of sin nature with the righteous nature so that he was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Basic gospel, but man, I don't know why people don't believe it. And the last part of that is it says that he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. 
He literally stepped into that domain, into the darkness. He became the darkness and defeated it. See, we see sin in people's lives and we condemn and point fingers and run away. What God did was he dove right into the middle of it to kill it. God dove into the middle of the sin to become your sin, to destroy it so it would no longer have power over you. And he fulfilled the law because the law was the strength of the sin. When you look at this and you say, I know I'm not supposed to do that, that brings guilt and it strengthens the behavior. It's just the way we're wired. So he fulfilled all of that. And it's like he stepped in, if you were to compare it to like an army, the commander-in-chief, King Jesus of everything, he's ruler, all supreme. And that's really what Galatians is, is a, is a declaration of who Jesus is as this eternal king. And he steps in and he rips the patches off the enemy's shoulders, right? If you're in the army or whatever it is, he takes all the authority back. He says, I am not representing you and you are not representing me, enemy. You're done. You have no more authority, no more right, because I'm the king and I have the right to say that. So when you sin, it doesn't give the devil the right to come into your life because he's already been stripped of any and all authority. Amen? Do you believe that? I mean, a lot of people think, well, I'm opening the door for the devil. The only way that you are is your sin continues to harden your heart so you're not hearing the voice of God to be led by the truth. And then we start to entertain what the world has for us. That's then when we become susceptible to lies. But there's this weird thing that when people hear us talking about the new covenant, and it's, you know, usually religious people get a little upset, but they seem to think that we're saying it's okay to sin. Or it's like, yeah, you preach that stuff, and you're going to give people a license to sin, as if they need a license to sin. <laughs> I mean, people are doing a pretty good job on their own, aren't they? <coughs> they don't need a license to do. You know, do you need me to tell you it's okay to sin? <laughs> You do? <laughs> Something wrong with you. No, I'm kidding. Someone once told me that we were looking through rose-colored glasses. Looking through rose-colored glasses. How about blood-colored glasses? So it sounds good to preach this stuff, but if you really truly understand the scriptural basis behind it, it you know, you really have in proper perspective where we see this sin issue. And that's what I want to talk about today. You know, if you've heard those voices that say you're going light on sin, well, let's really look at sin. Let's really look at what grace is under the microscope of the new covenant and deal with it. And I'm telling you, buckle up because there's more responsibility under this perspective than there is under maybe the, the idea where you still have a little bit of a sin nature lingering around. Because see, if you still have partial sin nature, you've got an excuse to stay in sin. Or maybe the enemy is the one that's causing all these problems for you, so it's just his fault. The devil made me do it. But if you understand the enemy has no power and you are changed at your core, there is no excuse left. You don't have a right to even entertain sin under grace. And there's no condemnation. See, the good news is that God... That's part of what happened when the Messiah came into the land, announced the gospel of the kingdom, announced the presence of the kingdom, and started to establish the new covenant was 
all those prophecies began to fall into place. And Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they all said that when the new covenant begins, that one of the main factors is God is no longer holding your sin against you. It's, it's bizarre that people hear in their mind, okay, but then people are going to hear that and think they, you're telling them to sin or that it's okay or we're going to go light. Now, let, let's look at it. We're going to read the entire book of Romans today. Y'all ready for that? No, I am going to read a lot of scripture. Imagine that, reading the Bible in church. But, <laughs> so, you know, something we have to understand about the book of Romans, and y'all know me, I like to give homework. Uh, I don't want to challenge you too much and say go read Romans this week, but go read Romans this week. Amen. Romans is, it is Paul's masterpiece. Romans is Paul's genesis. I mean, really, it's kind of Paul's Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Bible. Romans is Paul laying out the full uh, history of mankind with God and where we end up with him and all the details of the ramifications of the kind of relationship that we now have with him in Christ. So don't get stuck in one, two, three, four, or five, or six, or even seven. Keep on reading through eight at least and realize I've got to get to the end of the story before I start forming my conclusions of what I think Paul is saying here. Does that make sense to you? It's a, it's a, body, it's a letter. It's a body of work. It's not something to stop in one place and build a doctrine on until you see where he goes about what we are. So remember, we're going to focus on sin. You didn't think I'd be saying that in this church, but, man, you know, it's like, and, and there are some, I, don't, I hate to label it, but grace people or new covenant focused people that the way they do preach, it does make people feel like, well, my sin is really of no consequence. Or, you know, it's just God just kind of blinks and sweeps it under the rug. It's like, no, let's put it in proper perspective. Let's take full responsibility for where we are under this new covenant and see where it really fits. Y'all want to do that? So you start off realizing, I'm not fighting the enemy. I'm trying to believe the truth, and I'm bringing my thoughts in agreement with the truth. The other thing is, the law is not held against me, so I have peace with God. I don't ever have to fear God's judgment because I have peace with God. Jesus is the complete, perfect, and eternal sacrifice. Do you receive that? Is that your offering? Is that your approach to God? Is Jesus... All right, so Romans 5, verse 1, it starts out just by saying that we have peace with God. And now we have access into this grace by faith. So in other words, we trust God, and as we trust God, we experience the empowerment of His indwelling Spirit. Because that's what grace is. Grace is an empowerment. It's, it's capacity. It's ability. It is strength in your inner man, in your inner being, and it teaches you to live godly, and it teaches you to be generous, and it teaches you how to walk out this holiness that you have been made. Does that make sense? So I've got a few sections here in the next couple of chapters. Romans 5, verse 8. And I I'm, I'm, think I'm going back and forth between King James and New King James, so it might be a little bit different what you see on the wall. You can just stick with the King James, Philip. <laughs> Uh, because the words are important in some of this. So Romans 5, 8, 
But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know those sinners that the church loves to point fingers at? Christ died for them. Their only hope of changing is to hear about the goodness of God, to experience God's kindness. That's what causes repentance. Even the extremists around the world that are committing horrific acts, God, Christ died for them too. You know, we're like, kill them all, bomb them. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I don't know what the solution is politically. That's why Mike's called to what he does. You know, I'm a preacher. We'll let him go and do that stuff. And maybe he'll be president one day and we'll, you know, be all good. (laughs) Uh, But the ultimate solution is that those people encounter the goodness of God. You know, you hear that stuff all the time. You hear people, I had a dream of those those extremists. I had a, you know, Islam extremists. I'm not afraid of throwing the Muslim word out there, but, you know, I get that they're extremists within their thing. So, God chose them in Christ. If they would just receive that, they can experience it too, you know. We don't, we don't really have enemies. We just have people that don't believe the truth yet. And as soon as they do, man, they're changed. As soon as they accept and receive Christ, they're just like us. They're no more, we're no more valuable as a human than they are. Yeah, man, let's pray. Let's pray for them. Father, we just speak blessing over that place. We speak courage and strength and grace in the hearts of those believers that are being persecuted so that they will reflect your goodness and that nation will change. Those areas will change. You know, I mean, I don't know what your eschatology is, but I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. I think there's still hope for those people. But anyway, there's not. We'll, we'll keep going. So keep, just keep reading. <laughs> so... Verse 9, Romans 5, 9, much more than, so now that we've received this, much more than having now been justified by his blood. When were you justified? When are you justified? Now. See, some people think that God just kind of credits righteousness to you like he did with Abraham, and then one day after you're dead, you'll really be righteous. No, now you're justified. Say, I'm justified. I'm justified. Now, through his blood, uh, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You know, there's a lot of talk right now, end time stuff and this and that, and we're depending on where you fall in that, and I'm not trying to make any statements on that. A lot of people believe a lot of different things. But the promise is, because now you are justified, you are free from wrath. Amen. Whatever happens on this planet... If it is God pouring out wrath, you are free from it. You are protected from it. Because that's what the Word says. Do you believe that? You're in. You are in the ark. You're in the boat. You are protected. Man, I'm telling you, that should eliminate fear. Verse 10 for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. King James says atonement. 
Now we have received the atonement. Now you have received the reconciliation. The word atonement means exchange. The reconciliation is that you've been brought into God, essentially, in Christ, seated with the Father. See, Jesus literally became our sin nature so that we could become his righteous nature. You don't become the Messiah. You don't get the opportunity to become a God and get your own planet based on however many wives you've got and all that, you know. You ever heard that? <laughs> I don't want to be a God. We'll let God be God. But I do want to believe the truth that I'm as righteous as Jesus is because that's his design. You know, it's, this is really just so fundamental, but uh, believers need to start believing the truth. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No, by no means. We Now, here's the proper New Covenant perspective on sin. A lot of people are starting to preach New Covenant stuff, and I'm happy for that. But watch out for the ones that it starts to sound, you know, you should be encouraged that you're, you have power to not fall into sin rather than feel like that God's just some ooey-gooey thing that's just going, doesn't really matter. You know, there's a, there's a big difference. And this is why, because... Uh, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? I mean, that's what, that was their, the early believers, the, the early apostles' perspective on what sin is. It's like, what, what are you still messing around with sin for? You're dead to sin. That's why when you read Peter and uh, James, and it seems like those guys are being really focused on performance and sin conscious, it's because they understand that in Christ you're dead to that nature, that that old man died, and you don't have any business playing around with sin. They're like, you're still sinning? I'm not even sure you're saved. That's how rooted they were in this new covenant identity. You know, and so then that becomes kind of modernized, and religious people get their fingers on that, and they start you know, kind of making your salvation based on your performance rather than what you believe. But the fruit does have a part to play. Do you see the difference? So, don't you know, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Say, I died with him. Verse 4, we were there, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Not after you die, but now. A new life. A life free from sin. A life free from guilt and condemnation and lack and death. You are free from the law of sin and death, having been translated from darkness into His kingdom, now in this law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So sin? No, we're not easy on sin. Well, you're dead to it. You don't have any right to entertain it because who Jesus is in you. Y'all act like y'all have heard this before. <laughs> this is good news, though, I'm telling you. And this is, this is where we can encourage people that believe, have been believing for a long time. So let's keep going here. Um, verse 5. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Say, I'm free from sin. I'm free from sin. We still struggle with it, don't we? Whether it be our anger issues or our fear issues or, you know, that fifth Twinkie. I mean, whatever it might be. Are y'all awake? I know what it is. My wife was just so cute that y'all were distracted by her over here. I was watching her walk around. Your beauty is blinding. <laughs> whatever, whatever you're, wherever you are on that scale, whatever it is that you're still easily tempted by, you are free from it. There is no law against you to condemn you for falling into it. Praise God for that. There is no punishment for you if you fall into it. Praise God for that. But because of all that, there is now this life within you that strengthens you and rises you above the power of it in this life. And it should be natural and easy for us to connect to that because that's the kind of beings that we are. We are righteous, holy beings and should be able to just live that stuff naturally. The reason that we don't is because what's going on up here and we struggle to believe what Jesus actually did on the cross. And, you know, I get to get up here every week and say the same kind of stuff over and over and I hope we all believe it one day. Me too. Bring more people in here and we'll get them to believe it too. Amen? Amen. January and February took a toll. People, too many people sick. Life, Lord, health. Amen. <clears throat> so Romans 7 is interesting because it looks like Paul is talking about an old sin nature that still kind of lingers around. It looks like he's talking about a time where he struggled with sin. And some uh, denominations use this as a context to, to try to prove that you do still have a bit of a sin nature. Like, it, like it's part of the kind of being that you are to still have a sin nature. As if we've got two natures, dual natures. As if Christ didn't fully become your sin nature so that you could fully become his righteous nature and the exchange is complete. So Romans 7, you know, it looks the conflict that it looks like he's experiencing. I've heard a few different uh, reasons for it. Some people say that he's talking about when he was a child before he came to the age of accountability and started trying to live under the law. Some people teach that, you know, it was like, Sam, help me out. Was it 13 or 20 years that he, it was like 13 years he went away 13 years, he went away. Paul, you know, it wasn't like God called Paul and then he jumped right into the ministry. 13 years, he went and studied. Yeah. Did you know that? I mean, it's like two verses. It says, Paul was called, and then the verse next later, 13 years later, we skip all that. So, I mean, he went for 13 years to really work this stuff out, really work out this theology. Then he came back and he met with the early apostles to see if what he was believing was right, because they'd been with Jesus. Then he goes into his ministry. You know, he was fully accredited when he launched out there. Did you know that? So some people teach that during this 13-year period, 
he was trying to work this stuff out, trying to figure out how to walk in grace and trying to apply it to his life and had a moment during that time where he did experience this, where the law kind of came back alive to him and he kind of adopted that old covenant mindset again and you know, try, had to fully let go of that because he was a good Jew. I mean, he was killing people yeah. that were against the law or that he perceived were against the law. You know what I mean? I mean, he was flawless under the law, he says. So whatever the point being, he clarifies himself as he goes through when he gets into chapter 8 about the difference between sin nature, righteous nature, walking in the flesh, walking in the spirit, being in the flesh, and being in the spirit. So here we go. Y'all ready? And now this is probably a little bit more technical that we normally would go into. So, you know, put your thinking cap on, as they say, because it's important. These little doctrinal points are important if we're going to represent Christ properly to this earth. You know, we, we need to do the world a, a, a justice in teaching this stuff in such a way where they, they know what Jesus did for them. Do you agree? Yeah. So, <clears throat> Romans 7, starting in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Say, I'm dead to the law. Now, that makes some people nervous. You start talking about the law doesn't apply to you. The law is obsolete. The law is fulfilled. The law is not for you. Some people get really nervous because, again, they start thinking, well, then what's going to make me do right? What's, what's going to make these people sitting in my church do right if I'm not making them do right with the law? I mean, really what they're saying is I don't trust the Holy Spirit to teach these people. Hello. That you may be married to another. I love this, man. I, oh, man. If we could get a revelation on being betrothed to God. You know, in Isaiah, he talks about that. He says, I am your husband. He talks about us being the bride of Christ. The, the kind of relationship that we're in with God now looks more like a marriage than it does sonship. I mean, we are his children, but the kind of relationship that he's brought us into, man, it is, it is serious business that he has brought us into the place that we're in with him. He says, and, and, he's, and you know, he, he kind of talks about if you're still flirting with sin, it's like you're cheating on him. If you still try to live by the law, you're cheating on him. Now, there's, you know, thankfully he keeps going in the verse chapter 8, and he says there's no <laughs> condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, if you, if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Don't sin, but if you do, you've got an advocate. Your high priest forever makes intercession for you. So, you know, it, you, you, got, you take it all in, and then we're in this place where he says, you may be, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. That is one of those mysteries that we miss. Where we are now is in this place with God where we bear fruit. It used to be God lived outside of people. You know, God said God would come to visit Adam and Eve in the garden and he would walk around with them. His presence would show up. They introduced sin and put a wedge between them and God. Then God finally gets to the point where he delivers them out of Egypt and what he says is, all right, do it this way so that I can dwell among you. He's trying to live with them. And eventually, the goal is get the Messiah in the land so he can live 
in you. Now, if you really fully understand the type and shadow in the Levitical priesthood, and you look at the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony, what was it? It was a box carefully crafted with God's design given to mankind. He said, build it this way. And then he said, put in it the law, the Ten Commandments. The law is in the box. Then he says, put some manna in there, which is a representation of God's nature providing for his people. Manna from when they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And he says, put Aaron's rod in there that budded and is a sign of God's power and miraculous you know, presence. And he says, and I will rest upon the mercy seat. So think about what that picture is. His chosen people have this box and it has God's law, which really the law is just God's best way to live. It never was meant for righteousness. It, you got a bunch of vagabonds that lived in slavery for 400 years, and they're interbreeding, and they're living like animals with no education. They don't really know much. You know, they get out in the desert, and God's like, all right, don't be killing each other. Don't be sleeping with each other's wives. Honor your parents. I mean, it's like basic rules, right? These are just people that didn't know any better. They didn't know. It wasn't for righteousness. Never was it for righteousness. Righteousness cannot come through the works of the flesh. It was to protect them from destroying themselves, you know? It was the best way to live. The law is God's best way to live. Now we have the indwelling spirit of God that teaches us and leads us and guides us into all truth. You don't need those external laws to tell you what's right and wrong. You've got the, bear, you've got the witness of the spirit inside of you leading you. <sighs> Come on. Man, I'm telling you, man, I, I get excited about this because we've changed. We're a different kind of being than the world has ever seen before. And if, if believers could start living according to the truth, you know, you don't have to teach people into the kingdom. You don't have to persuade them to believe like you do. If we really truly just yield to the influence of God and live according to his principles, man, people will look at us and desire him. Yeah. We, yeah. So back to the Ark of the Covenant, our lives can be as obvious as those guys that carried the Ark of the Covenant around, and they knew, even their enemies knew, don't mess with that thing. Yeah. Think about it. The Ark of the Covenant had God's presence on it, had God's laws in it, had God's power in it, had a testimony of God's provision in it. What do you think he was trying to say through that ark? He's teaching us what we are. Amen. You, you are, the are the living ark of the covenant walking around this earth. You carry the presence of God. Part of the new covenant was that God would write his laws on your heart and on your mind. His laws are in you. He's in you bringing life to you. There's a stick with a bud growing off of it. I mean, it's all a picture of who he is. And there's sustenance within it. It carried its own sustenance, the manna. We carry that. We carry that life. His spirit is constantly giving us life. Man, how dare we mess around with sin? Don't we know that we're the house of the living God, you know? And it's not condemnation. It's... <clears throat> It's no, you're better than that. 
the context of our relationship is not with a God that is outside of us that has to get through our behavior to get to us. Now it's changed where he lives within us to grow and bear fruit out of us. It's totally different. We're not trying to please him with our actions. We're trying to believe him and live a life that's in agreement that does bring pleasure to him. And, and, and it just changes. You know, if you can see Christianity this way, your responsibility of walking with God has more to do with you just yielding to him, yielding to your new nature. But man, we get in church and it's like, let me teach you how to prophesy. Let me teach you how to do miracles. Let me teach you how to do this. Let me teach you that. By the way, you don't have it all yet because Jesus wasn't enough, so I can lay hands on you and give you more of what you think you don't need. And I'm going to create this whole system and codependent Christianity is the name of the day or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, oh man. If it doesn't point you to Jesus, and if it doesn't make you even more rooted and firm in what he did on the cross, then run. Come on. And give him a book on the way out, you know. <laughs> hey, you need to read this. And again, it's not about us. We got it right and they got it wrong. There is no us and they. We're all the same. It's just, man, let's, let's, let's bring this teaching into more than just behavior modification. So, <clears throat> verse 7-5, uh, Romans 7-5, for when we were in the flesh, now notice the terminology here, and it's important to know this. When we were in the flesh, which is different from when you walk according to the flesh. So being in the flesh is a description of a, someone before they believe. They're in the flesh. You are, your identity is this is who you are. You are a sinner. You have a sin nature. You are in the flesh. And, then, and later he makes the, the distinction that now that you're a believer, you have a choice to walk after the flesh, or walk after the Spirit. Being in the flesh and walking after the flesh are two different things. So, verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passion... And this is one of those areas where you can't stop. You've got to keep going to understand what he's talking about. Uh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now... We have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And then let's just fast forward here to Romans 8, verse 9. Verses, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. I mean, if, if, if we could just take time to meditate on any little nugget about our new creation identity, this is it. We're going to read a couple more, but so, you know, Romans 8, verse 1, he jumps in and he says, there's therefore now no condemnation. Now, interestingly, the original manuscripts don't, go ahead and put, yeah. So, they don't have who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is transposed from, I think it's verse 4. That shouldn't be tacked on to the end of that. It should be a period after Christ Jesus, because now there's no condemnation. It's not conditional how you walk. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Whether you sin or whether you don't sin, Jesus 
took the full condemnation of breaking the law in himself on your behalf. You believe that? See, and, and, and because God is just, the law of double jeopardy applies. You cannot be tried for your sin. You cannot be punished for your sin by God because Jesus already stood in that place for you. Now, for some reason, that sounds like to some people, well, I think you're saying it's okay to sin. Really? No, I'm just trying to put sin in its proper perspective. It's not even part of the equation in light of what's happening in the spirit. Because that's what we need to do is compare spiritual to spiritual and not try to mix the covenants. You get confusion when you do that. So... <clears throat> I love this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. I mean, you really can't get any more clear than that. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, see, interestingly, he still continues to give life to even your physical body so that it can experience what's happened in your spirit. So, uh, but if the spirit who raised him, right, let's see. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, living according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I, you know, I, I'll be honest. Do you see the difference between being in the spirit and then walking after the spirit or walking according to the spirit? I mean, it's, he uses different language there for a reason, and it is for the reason to testify of this new creation that you are, the spirit that is in you giving you life. You're a different kind of being. You have no right to sin. You have no excuse to give in to sin. And if you do, it's because you have forgotten what you are. It's because you are setting aside beholding the lamb as your sacrifice. It has be, it's because your heart has hardened to the influence of the Spirit of God within you to give you grace to live spiritually, and you're choosing the lack. These emotions are in my life. This circumstance happened. It makes me feel this way, so now I've got to use carnal logic, and I'm going to end up in sin. Even that whole process is sin. Sin is not even necessarily the action. The action is the fruit of sin. Sin is believing something that's not in agreement with who you are in Christ. Sin is just something that's not fully in alignment with God's truth. Sin leads to fruit, which is sinful actions. But praise God, we've got the Spirit of God in us. Amen. We can live above <clears throat> sin. Amen. 
We can live above the power that it has within our lives to produce death. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus is alive within you. Now see, it's really important to understand this stuff doctrinally, but are you going to do what it takes for your heart and your mind to live naturally from this place? So you can't earn it, you can't attain it, you can't start getting it right enough to where it just like works for you. It's a daily choice. Just like it says that you had no choice but to sin because it bears fruit of itself, I believe you can live at a place where you have no choice but to live righteous and holy because that's who he is in you. And the fact that we don't just testifies that we're just looking in the wrong direction. You know, I preached this message in Indiana and somebody asked me, uh, are you saying that we could live sinless if we wanted to? Yeah, you could. Why do we sin then? Because we want to. <laughs> because we think, you know, all different kind of reasons. You know, life, life happens. You face divorce, you lose loved ones, you know, just wrecks come into your life, sickness. I mean, we've got a lot of cause to be distracted. You know, I, I don't want this message to feel, make you feel like, man, I am pond scum. I can't get nothing to work. I just want to encourage you in the potential because of what Christ has done in you, you know? Don't walk out of here thinking because you've got problems in your life that there's something wrong with you. That's just not the case. It's just that we just have to have, man, you know, I, I want to challenge you and show you just what you are in Christ. Just show you just what God thinks of you because of what he's done in you through Christ. That, that's really, that's our only hope. You know, we don't, we don't want much. You know, we're not that complicated. We're not that unique. You know, we want to not starve. We want to have a decent place to lay our head. We want good relationships, and we want to influence the world positively around us. There's not that much that people want that's all that different. You know? It, 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 we just, it's, it's all the definitions on all that stuff that starts to change who we think that we are. And so we start looking to the world to define us rather than to the Word. I mean, when, think, when was the last time, you know, maybe you thought about your budget because we're doing this Dave Ramsey course. It's really good. But maybe you thought about your budget more than you thought about what Christ did for you this past couple of weeks. I mean, our lives will bear the fruit of what our minds are focused on. Our lives bear the fruit of what we allow to be magnified in our hearts. You know, do you live a life of meditation and focus and awareness of the Spirit of God within you? See, because here's the thing about God. You don't have to convince Him to work. You don't have to convince Him to show up. He's, he's light. All we do is we open ourselves up and he shines. And if we remain patient and we don't give up and we stay in faith toward him, his nature will bear fruit in your life. And Jesus talks about it in the parable of the sower. He says, you want to know how it happens? Would you like to know how it happens? Say yes. Yes. <laughs> he says, all right, here's how it happens. It's like a farmer 
who casts seed in the ground, and he goes to sleep, and he wakes up, and he doesn't know how it works. Really, Jesus? That's the explanation we get? It's like, well, that, so what you're saying is, I just need to rest. And as I'm resting, God is bearing fruit in my life. Man, I'm telling you, you become unshakable if you can rest in God's love for you when you're going through hard times. It's cliche. Every Christian will tell you that. Just rest in his love. Yeah, but there's more than that. That is the very power in your life. That is the very recipe, the very environment for God to bear fruit in your life. Unfortunately, usually what we call resting in God is, I'm just going to think about him for a little bit, but really I'm freaking out on the inside. And I'm freaking out because I'm not confident in what kind of being that I am. Man, you know, one of our main things is we just want to inspire people to trust God. Because when you trust God, I mean really trust, I mean you're operating in that spiritual gift of faith. You know, you're not just saying, well, I hope one day. You, you can't stop the fruit. It just works out. I'm not saying life's going to be perfect and you're not ever going to experience difficulties, but God is waiting for you to open that heart and let his light shine into this life. And not just as a nice little phrase, but because that, you know, this world knows who God is. And it, it's, he is its creator. And when he has influence into this place, it responds how it's supposed to. All of creation is designed to show us who God really is. So if we let God shine in our lives, this world lines up and acts like it's supposed to. I mean, he said, and I think it's Romans 1.20, you know, that those things that are seen clearly teach us about what's unseen. You know, if you're having trouble understanding or connecting with God, or maybe there's just one area that you just, you just keep battling, go pick a spot in nature, stare at a tree, Watch a cow chew grass. That stuff, man, God will speak to you. You know, you start, it's like, oh, this testifies of how this works, and it's a process, and, you know, it just bears for God. Is, God is life, and he's in you. He is this seed. He is the eternal seed planted within you, growing. Man. And, and he is happy to be there. He has made you clean and whole. God cannot dwell anywhere that is not holy. So you must be holy because he is in you. Now, does this make you want to go sin? Exactly. Man, Father, we thank you so much for this precious salvation.